Welcome to Aussie Ambitions Podcast, where we meet with everyday Aussies that are pushing ahead with their goals and ambitions in life. Join your host, Scott Robert Springer, to explore the future of entrepreneurship, work-life balance, and reaching beyond your comfort zone. So stay tuned for some tips on living life the Aussie way. All right, welcome to the Aussie Ambitions Podcast. Uh, we're here on the topic of truffles, and there's a whole lifestyle that goes along with it. We've got a guest. It's Debbie Oliver. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Good, thank you. Excellent. So first of all, welcome. I know you uh, got a lot on the go. Uh, you pulled up in your nice branded, I'd call it a ute, basically, but it's a really polished looking machine. Um, uh, fair to say you own and run a company, yeah? Yes, I do. Yeah, my little truffle truck, I call it. Excellent. It's very clean, by the way. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it gets clean once a week. All right. Yeah. Okay. So I'll introduce introduce you as the owner and founder of Lady Truffle Fine Foods. Yes. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been working on? Okay. So my business is uh, Gold Coast based with a warehouse in Yatla. And I source and supply high-end fine niche foods for chefs, restaurants, and foodies. Okay, source and supply. Mm. So there's, a, I guess this will be a truffle education for a lot of people. Yes. And perhaps um, a lot, most of our audience would be outside of Australia. So uh, what's, your, what's your general guess on people's knowledge of truffles? Is it something people know a lot about or not so much? In Europe, more so than Australia. It's certainly um, it's ingrained in the culture of the French and Italian and the Europeans, whereas in Australia it's a little bit of a, a newer product and uh, has really only been grown in our country for the last 30 years. So when I did start my business, it was very interesting to, to launch that product, Truffle, and the name Lady Truffle, and everybody thought it was chocolate. Yes. So it was an education process that I had to go through with a lot of my marketing to educate people what truffle was and uh, and how valuable it is and how wonderful the product is. So you mentioned chocolate and it, it actually jumped into my mind. What is the connection? Why would they think it's chocolate? Okay, so the truffle chocolate was named after a truffle. So it looked the same and that that's, that's actually quite interesting because I actually looked it up myself. I thought, I wonder why truffle's got the same name, but it's because the first truffle chocolate looked like a truffle and they called it. And this is perfect because you have brought some items today. So the people listening in are going to have to check out the YouTube episode. But and please do that. Um, and let's just show them what it looks like on camera. So okay. let's just get that. Um, yeah, let's have a look. So these are actually French Perigords. They are a winter black truffle that I brought in. And I bring these into our country, Australia, and import them every week for our chefs and restaurants to use. So that's one little one there. You can smell them in the room. Absolutely, yeah. you can smell them in the room. And it's it's sort of like a it's aromatic. So I wouldn't say it's sort of like it's it's not super strong, but like it's there. Yep. Um, and so it's, they're, they're like a little underground. It's an underground mushroom. To put it into perspective, that is a little underground mushroom. Quite an expensive aromatic thing, and the reason it has so much aroma is for in order for this this to to reproduce and to survive. It actually gets dug out of the ground by animals. That's pigs and squirrels, and and um and then through those animals going to the bathroom, the spores go back into the ground, and that's how they re reproduce. So a truffle needs animals, and it needs aroma to be found. Okay, uh, and so you've transported them here in like a sealed container, basically, right? Yes. And then just displayed them on the desk. Uh, so again, just for people listening in, just to get a feel for, I mean, you can Google and look at images and. It'll be interesting to see if there's different coloring for, for that. But we're seeing it's quite a black. Yep. So this species of truffle is Milanosporum. 
which is the most expensive of the black truffle. And uh, we we have several different species of truffle. The most common that people hear of is a white truffle and a black truffle. So the season at the moment is this winter truffle called a perigord. Um, you'll see there's some that come in a colour very similar to this and there are different species which may be like a summer or burgundy truffle, but this is the most expensive of the black. It has a stronger aroma and a more uh, fruity, nutty flavour. Wow. Uh, so obviously this is something that's of high, like high value goods and maybe the, the customer, the end user is also... Um, is it, I mean, the price points on this stuff is quite high, right? Yeah, so these are, are retailing at the moment for about 2800 a kilo. Uh, and they usually pay by the gram or buy a little truffle to use for a dinner, for a dish, for eggs or pasta. So in a restaurant, you may actually just choose your own truffle to be shaved over your dish on a steak or a pasta. Yeah, I mean, wow. So obviously, um, it's it's restaurants working with this. Do you get people that are trying to buy direct, like Absolutely. home chefs and so yeah. on? Yeah, so private foodies that have experienced a truffle, once you... There's certain people that just cannot get enough. They love truffle. They love the aroma, flavor, mushroom lovers, uh, fine dining, and they will reach out directly to me to say, listen, we're having a private dinner. Can you deliver a truffle over for us to enjoy? Uh, and, and it's such a talking point that there's such a, uh, a mystery to the truffle, the allure of the truffle, we call it, and that's that connection between man, nature, and an animal, and that's how they're found and how they're grown and how mysterious they are because you never know how many you're going to get under a tree. Oh, is that right? So it's a, um, so there's a, this discovery process basically or like hunting, I think you referred to it in an earlier chat. Is that right? Yes, that's true. So the truffle hunters will go out with their loyal companion and it's dogs these days, whereas Back many, many years ago, it was pigs. Uh, they no longer use pigs. So it's dogs that they train up to go and find these truffles uh, in in the wild or in farms. And so you have dogs yourself or your company does? No, no. I've got orchards, but uh, there is businesses in Australia that sp specialize just in truffle hunting for and, and training their dogs to do this job. Okay. So you can hire them to come out to your orchard or your farm to come and search for the truffles, or there are many farms that, that have their dogs on site. And some of these are rescue dogs. It's a beautiful story. So they can get their dogs in and train them to go and, and work on the on the job. Wow. Okay. I mean, but it would be a rare find, yeah? Like it's not uh, – these items are quite rare. Is that is fair to say? Yes. Yeah, so, um, look, the – some farms may find, you know, only a couple truffles under a tree and others find kilos. So this is the mystery of the truffle. Uh, it's how it's grown and whether you, you do a great job and if you're in the right environment and the right trees and the right climate. Uh, and Australia, we have a, a very strong truffle industry here. We're the fourth largest producer in the world. So we, uh, we've excelled actually in growing truffle here and we export quite a lot of the truffle into the European market when their season isn't uh, producing. I see. So when you describe fourth largest, that's the country of Australia? Yes, it is, yeah. Okay. So we have over um, over 300 farms in our country, over I think 180 that are commercial, and uh, they're based everywhere around the country, including some in southeast Queensland now, but mainly in Tasmania and Western Australia. So those two regions are very famous for their truffle, Tasmania, and uh, also Canberra and Melbourne and South Australia are now starting to produce great truffle. The truffle needs, uh, they say, 
around seven frosts to mature and ripen. And it also uh, requires certain rainfall and certain temperatures to be able to get the truffle to be of quality, of value and of aroma and of flavour. So there's lots of farms out there and some produce uh, truffle that may not be as strong as others. And my job is to go and visit these farms and to try to provide my foodies and my chefs with some of the best truffle that our country has to offer. Yeah, wow. So um, the I guess the distribution, like you, just, you said, you're here. Where do you spend most of your time? Are you here on the Gold Coast? Yes. So what my what I tried to do um, to to ensure that the guest experience is a great one is uh, take these truffles in to the chefs myself so they can choose the truffles that are going to work for the dish that they're going to use them for. Um, I also uh, deliver them within 24, 48 hours of receiving them so they're very fresh. And this is imperative because the truffle flavour and aroma will actually start to decim um, will disintegrate and leave as the truffles left the ground. So they really should be used as fresh as possible. Um, so, yeah, that's my, my world is just going and finding these little dirt gems and these little dirt diamonds and all the different names they give them because they're quite expensive and getting them out to these foodies that just can't get enough. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I appreciate it. All that stuff's very clear and maybe supports, maybe some people know a little bit about it and that they can look more into it in terms of um, maybe the, the, the flavoring and the, you know, the taste and experiencing it properly. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and, and I help chefs with truffle talks and dinners. So we'll have guests come in and we'll do a big event where sometimes they could bring a dog in. They can see the truffle being found in a restaurant, which is quite clever. But it's also educating the, the guests on how uh, mysterious these, these little uh, underground mushrooms are and then bringing that magic to the table. Wow. So... Is there any other like secondary type of a mushroom that you might uh, get involved with, maybe like on a seasonal basis or a once-off? Like, I don't know. I mean, we see the truffles, and that's probably the you probably get your hands full with that. But is there any other mushroom type product that you might? Yeah, so pick? I actually go out mushroom hunting myself for the pine mushrooms, which could be anything from a slippery jack to a saffron milk cap. Uh, and then there's a, a guy in Adelaide that finds uh, a porcini, which is a very famous mushroom, which is can be quite large. I've got some photos on my social media where, I, I mean, some of them weren't, if I said to you, nearly your foot. Sure. It's like large, pudding. massive, beautiful porcinis, which are the king of the mushrooms. Um, yes, yeah, so we, we've got a bit of a mushroom, wild mushroom supply here in Australia. There's morels found now in Victoria as well, which is like a little tiny um it's almost like a cone that's uh, like a little house, these little beautiful meaty morels that are now found here. So, yeah, we've got a bit of a mushroom space and they were brought over uh, with the pine plantations okay. uh, from Europe. Okay. Now, the pine mushroom rings a bell for me. I, I, I probably just mentioned this. People would be surprised, you know, to learn a little bit more about how I've had some experience with this. But, yeah, just uh, you, have you been to Canada? No, I haven't. Have no, been to Canada. Not okay, yet. so just to describe, I'm, like pine mushrooms was something that in my area, where I was in my hometown basically, they would, uh, pine mushrooms was very a uh, big part of, I guess, the local, there's like a local um, effort to go out and cultivate these and pull them out of like wild mushrooms and then they would be shipped to like an overseas location and it was Japan at the time. Um, but uh, I don't know that there was... All I remember about it was it was a very high value uh, mushroom and the, and it could swing like the pricing was like daily. So you'd be checking the price and that would drive if the price was very high per kilo per pound. They would actually 
people would just come out of the woodwork. So, you know, teachers would take the day off and they'd go and pick mushrooms. And whatever your day job was, you were just going to go get your crop of mushrooms and try to get in on the cash grab. Yes, and that's um, because of the supply. So some weeks there's uh, 100 kilos out there and another week there might only be 5 kilos. So the price uh, fluctuates depending on the, the supply and demand. Oh, Same wow. with truffles. Same with truffles, is it? Yeah. Amazing. So, and... Is the, do you think that phenomenon exists where there's these kind of hobby pick, hobbyist pickers out there, either in any of our countries or across the world? Yeah, look, there's certain some states in Australia that you need a license to do it. Uh, and it's also very, um, like I would never take mushrooms from someone that didn't know what they're doing. There's a lot of uh, poisonous mushrooms out there, death cap, the white ones. So you kind of got to be careful. Okay. But uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> uh, it's, um, and they, what do they say? You only get a bad mushroom once. So, <laughs> oh, wow. There's lots of places we can go to this mushroom chat. Yeah. So, so poisonous <laughs> mushrooms. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of mushrooms now being cultivated. So we've got like the lion's mane uh, and the oyster mushrooms that are supplying restaurants and, and foodies now which are quite colourful and, and very, very interesting looking. But um, I, I, I tend to stick with the wild ones, the ones that are completely um, found out there based on Mother Nature and, and the right rainfall and the right temperature and the right conditions. So a little trickier than the most. For sure. Um, so it, it, does it feel like, is there a bit of a natural, I think you described it earlier, but the the people involved, the natural aspect of it is just a big part of it. It's like knowing that it's from the earth and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Feeling that connectivity. And I think it's really important this day and age to be able to uh, go out and enjoy nature in that sense. So for me, it's almost a pleasure to spend my weekend out there mushroom hunting or being amongst uh, the farming industry or the country. Uh, and I think it all it's, a, it's soothing. It's certainly something that gets you away when I have a business that spends 90% of my time on social media or a bit of paperwork or driving to restaurants personally to deliver product to get away for just 48 hours or 24 hours and do that, it's almost like a complete recharge, uh, soul therapy. Yeah, interesting. So is that, I guess we might be stumbling into the origins of the business, like how this all started. Is that fair to say where where it came from, a bit of like a, a personal um, Yeah, you could say that. I, I did nine years in a corporate role and uh, sold my soul and felt that it was uh, necessary to to move on and move out of that space. And I saw the opportunity to do what I do here on the Gold Coast. And that was primarily due to a, a change in, in the foodie scene, in the opportunity with social media and being able to start a business in that space at that time when people were taking so many photos of their food, it was quite easy to touch base with the, the foodie scene and the restaurant and chef scene. Uh, and my business was able to take off quite quickly that way. And also the, the dining scene here with the new Star Casino opening up and all those fine dining restaurants, it was almost like the perfect storm for me. So I um, decided to, yeah, to leave the safety and security of a corporate job with a good figure and salary and go and jump into something that I was so passionate about to get the hell out of an office. Just a lot of people are probably nodding their heads right now. thinking. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's the combination of factors, right? Like the, you know, the, the market was, was there was an opportunity there, and then maybe like mentally, you were just like ready for something ready. new. Yeah. Um, did anybody try to talk you out of it? Yeah. Look, when I did leave, go to leave the company, there was a lot of uh, talk from the board. When I left, they did replace me with four staff members. So I think I'd actually almost burnt myself out. I've got a little son. He was in the office with me on the weekends. It just was getting out of control. Wow. 
and um, and I was rebranding uh, these businesses around the country. So I was traveling a lot and working a lot. Uh, and I, I'd, I'd been introduced to this kind of beautiful food having lived overseas for 10 years. So I had this passion to get back into uh, enjoying amazing food and to be able to work with it and then also devour it at the same time is pretty lucky. Yeah, okay, yeah. so there it is. So you, you definitely uh, appreciate the product as a, as a consumer, yeah? Oh, food, food's everything. And it's, it's more, more to do with being able to share that food with people. So when I do uh, a presentation or a talk about caviar or truffle, that journey that I can take the foodie on is just the best part of my whole job. It's enjoying that story, the story, the journey, how it came about, where it came from, why it's so beautiful or luxurious or unique or rare. And that goes for all of, a lot of my products are quite, um, you know, it's everything from your saffron to your, to your gold, to your truffles, the albers. I mean, they can be up to $20,000 a kilo. So there's a, a big, big, um, big expense in some of the products that I use and I want to make sure that the the guest or the client or the chef or the restaurant or the people that are working with the food understand why it's got to that and where it comes from. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely just curious about the authenticity of it. Like you described, such a high value item and then there's like, like you said, whether it's synthetic or cultivated in some way, it you describe that, right? It's, it's yeah, with the, okay. So it's with, an alternative to, to wild. It's like some kind of lab format. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with the mushrooms, you can get cultivated or wild. Cultivated. Okay. Um, with a, a truffle, it's important for me to educate um, my my chefs and restaurants and front of house in the hospitality what truffle they're using and why it's more expensive than other truffle. And that was really eye opening. I think when I started and launched my business, there wasn't a lot of education around the different species of truffle being sold out there in the market. So a lot of my chefs were like, wow, we didn't realize that this this truffle is half the price because it's a different species. So for me, that, that being able to give some sort of credibility and authenticity to the, this industry and to the special speciality of this truffle was just mind-blowing. I loved it. I love, I love educating. I love empowering. I love the fact that the chef in the restaurant and the front of house can go out and offer something to their guests and speak about it with confidence. It's really important. Absolutely. And, and I can imagine that the, the clientele and the, the restaurants and the chefs that you're working with, they are aspiring to greatness and differentiating and experience. So, you know, you want to have that special element. So you're not going to be looking for the, uh, the shortcuts and something. Well, yeah, people go out to a restaurant now and they want an experience. They're not going there just to sit and, and fill their tummies. They're going because they want to understand little things like the prosciutto, where it's come from and why it's so expensive, or cheeses, every bit of food that you eat. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience for the mouth, for the mind, for, for the visual, for the whole impact of going to a restaurant now needs to be special. It needs to be special to actually get the person in the door. So if they're not walking in the door and receiving incredible service or getting attention or understanding why they're spending the money on the food that's put in front of them. I just think it's a whole journey that the hospitality industry is working on and with, and that's the experience that the guest has when they come into that restaurant. So I find when the chef comes out and walks even around a room, people get a bit excited. Like it's it's good to have that engagement and that guest-client experience. That's neat. And even during those moments where you're introducing it or or educating or um, just having a little bit of a up close with this uh, this truffle, um, yeah. are they 
are they always looking for a, a taste? Like, are they looking to consume it? <laughs> I was just wondering, is the education and the origins of it uh, enough? Or do they really want that that understanding of the... The flavor, the flavor, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I guess it's part of the whole experience, which is, you know, when they do a truffle talk, well, they're, they're going to receive the truffle on the dish anyway. Why not explain to them how it got there? Uh, caviar is another one. I love the caviar talks I do because everyone has this perception of caviar, whether it's sustainable or whether it's an overfishy flavor. And then when I do a caviar, which I'm doing one tonight, I, I guarantee you those guests will leave with a whole different perception of caviar and what it's about and the history, the romance and the, the flavor. It's a, it's a journey. Yeah. Oh, well, we should probably just get the website out there so people can actually discover the, the range. But you do have the, you've got caviar in, like, I see red and black and. Yeah, yeah. So caviar and roe. But uh, caviar okay. is the, the term that's used for the, the eggs yep. or the roe that comes from a sturgeon fish. Okay. Just that fish. So you shouldn't really use the term caviar for anything other than the eggs from a sturgeon. Uh, so that's yeah, good. So. This is that educational piece coming across, <laughs> and we're going to push it out to, you know, just get, look. I mean, people that know it and appreciate it um, and consume it. But I think it's good. Do you think is it a, is it a product that um, you can draw people into the category? Like I always see it as maybe it's a, it's an elite type thing where people go their whole lives without ever trying it. And that's the greatest part about my job. My favorite part is being able to give something to somebody that could necessarily be seen as a bucket list item. You're never going to get to try it. So I've been fortunate enough to launch my business at a time when a lot of these products have not been so elitist, have been able to be um, more affordable. Uh, and, and caviar is a very interesting one because around 30 years ago, they banned the fishing of the wild sturgeon. At that same time, people were opportunists and they created farms to produce sturgeon. That's 30 years ago. It takes for some of the huso huso, which is the beluga caviar, mm -hmm. that, which is the most expensive, yeah. it takes around that for the sturgeon to produce this um, egg. So now there's almost, and it, I'll get in trouble for saying this maybe, but there's almost an oversupply of caviar happening. So the prices have come down. It's more affordable. It's more achievable for somebody to actually experience something that maybe 30, 40 year, years ago they would never have been able to afford. So I loved, I mean, tonight's talk, I'll, I'll have people in the room and I'll be able to show them and allow them and give them that experience of having something that maybe they never, ever thought they could. It's yeah, it's cool. That's really cool. I mean, I like how you sort of you gone much beyond you know the product and the brand and the you know there's the the logo is very nice and it, it looks very well presented. I imagine that supports everything that you're you're doing. But then you get into this experiential and events and one is it one on one or is it like what's the ratio of yourself as the speaker and then the people? Okay, in the room? so it, dep it depends. If it's a big event, I mean, I've I. I have a passion for presenting and I have a passion for public speaking and that stems way back even when I um, worked in the travel industry uh, at schools and the university in Sydney. I had 5,000 people, so I'm, I love love it. I get a bit of a buzz. Uh, the ones that I do here on the Gold Coast or in Brisbane or Noosa, so Eden, Noosa Eat and Drink Festival, I'm doing that next weekend, there'll be anywhere from 12 people up to 50, 100, 200 in the room and I, and I just love bringing to them that journey that that whole experience so yeah that's well that's powerful i mean uh, and then hopefully from there they are passing on the 
the knowledge, right? Does that happen? Where you? Oh, for sure. Where it's for not sure. just you, uh, you and them, but it goes into this whole. World. I want them to get excited about it, uh-huh. and, and that's passion. That's that's why we do what we do. And the chef too. It's it's a great chance because a lot of chefs are, um, aren't extroverts. They're quite um, their their personality type is creative, and they may generally sit in a kitchen all day, every day, and, and not get out much. So it's nice to be able to work with chefs to get them out and to feel confident to come out and speak about products and their dishes. And, and it's, yeah, it's fun. It's yeah. a lot of fun. That's neat. Um, and then just, again, getting to know yourself a little bit, would you, would you sit down in, in some of the fine restaurants as a, just as a bit of a, um, I'm not an anonymous experience, but at arm's length, you know, so you're not, because obviously you'd be privileged to know everyone and know the chef and they bring out yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. But do you go in a bit of that stealth mode and, and experience? Uh, yeah, I, I try to. The great thing about my business is I can support the restaurant back. So I'll always pay for my meal. I'll always go in and, and be a guest and take people in, especially to restaurants that support small business or support me. Um, and that's one of the best parts about being able to give back because I love going out for dinner anyway. So it's easy to enjoy that and bring friends along. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly places that I'll go that I, I go into and I, I can, you don't want to be critical, you can see things can be done better. And that could be the fact, this this is one example, uh, white asparagus from Italy was brought in and I'd gone to a restaurant and the front of house lady didn't know that that uh, I was the one that had actually brought it in to supply to the chef and the plate was put down in front of me and she walked away without even saying that this this is something magic. Yeah, and I, I was shocked. Like I thought there was so much opportunity for her to talk about whether the the asparagus was the French wild asparagus that's found out in you know in nature, or whether it's white asparagus and why is it white? Like it's there's so much opportunity to to drum up that experience for the foodie. That's and neat. foodies are passionate. Like they love it. You can tell when you you're talking to a foodie whether they're they want to know more or they just want you to go away. So you've got to be able to understand body language and be an empath, I guess, to to figure that. But for some foodies, they, they can't get enough. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that's neat. Look, I mean, it's definitely. Uh, I imagine that's, you know, if your interest is there, your passion is there. I mean, it, it's a, a very a vibrant kind of environment, right? Like it's not a dull. <laughs> no, find no. me a dull restaurant. Most of them are. And people love food, exactly. and it brings people together. There's nothing more simple than having a conversation about food in front of you. And enjoying and enjoying that. So that's where you know you're avoiding topics that can be quite controversial. When you go into a restaurant, all your friends and family get together. There's no one says no to getting together over food. It's the first thing. Oh, sure, done. Or like a, a drink and food. It's just brilliant. Yeah, oh, that's neat. Um, just, just to bring it back to you being in the, in the restaurant, having that experience of of it's a missed opportunity. They didn't, yes, you know, present yeah. and tell the full story. Um, that's probably a lesson for people listening in about you know if you've got a product or a service or anything that you. You have a passion that you've you've taken it to the front line, but then it hasn't translated into that consumer experience. Uh, maybe you have a think about that because I think that's probably pretty common. People, um, there's so much sweat that goes into getting it that far, and all the storytelling and the product and it, even the rarity sometimes. Uh, but sometimes it's just not that final that final step is it is missed and. Yeah, just it's because it is. It is that the the products got there. The chefs done their magic to get it to taste and look and present well. And then that final one step is that front of house coming out and saying, here we go, this is your wild French asparagus or this is your Italian or this is your truffle that's from Manjimup, Western Australia, enjoy. Oh, that's good. And then people will either say, "What did you? where's it from? Or what? what is it? 
again that's and neat. that's when you can have that conversation and it's great that's neat and and, and that's actually an opportunity to um, learn from people who have those roles you know like we've got looking at uh, people in hospitality in front of front of you know front of house and just different types of industries but um, yeah, it'd be interesting to get that perspective of someone that is there and has the story for and they're proud of the menu and they're yeah. you know, all those things they're able to deliver it and they get all the glory because you know they come back and say that was that was amazing, you know? <laughs> so it's like, hopefully that goes back to the chef and it goes back upstream and you get all the feedback as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, they're going to take photos of food. Foodies are going to take photos now and they're going to post it. And there's so much going on in the hospitality space that you really do need to be um, considerate of that final step, which is that front of house presenting and being polite and smiling and being into the food they're putting out. Oh, nice. Well, so I'm going to switch into foodie mode just for a second. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> um, and and just to know where this can be used. So I can understand um, a main dish as a as an enhanced flavor or like a, a luxurious flavor. Does it come up in, in an appetizer or in a dessert? Uh, where across the, the With the meal? truffle? Yeah. Uh, look, it, it comes up. It depends on the chef and how creative they want to get. But one of my favorite dishes on earth, and it's unforgettable, is white truffle ice cream. And it was it's something that every year when I import the Albers uh, from Italy, uh, that I ask one chef at least to make me some white truffle ice cream. And it's just incredible. It's almost like if you think of salted caramel, how that you know exploded. Everyone wanted salted caramel on everything. Or white truffle, it's like a mushroomy ice cream. It's just incredible. That's fun. And it, is that an Australian uh, experience that you had or was that overseas somewhere? No, I actually had it in Australia. Yeah, I actually had it in Australia. That's, yeah. that's neat. I mean, it will be interesting to see in the comments if people have, have ever you know, sampled some of this or, you know, like how do you discover this kind of rare, so, you know, tr truffle ice cream and especially the white version. Um, I, just thinking about the, and then I'll, I'll just cover up on, on the beverages side of things. I'm thinking of like a lot of times in, in um spirits and things there's like infusion so that might be infused with certain kind of wheat or grass or you know yes yeah, so anything in that world gin maybe next it's so popular at the moment but certainly i've had uh whiskey um producers i would guess you would call them uh reach out for truffle to try to flavor a whiskey and uh certainly the asian market uh would like they're, they're crazy about truffle anyway yeah so to add it to a whiskey is a, a, a surefire winner okay Okay, yeah. so so you mentioned that it's it's bigger in other markets. So is it uh, any one in particular? Like I'm thinking like Hong Kong, maybe some big metro yeah, corporate so, areas. So when uh, we export this product overseas, our main market has in the past, okay. obviously with COVID being a bit of a challenge, but definitely Hong Kong, Japan, Vietnam. Uh, we've got a lot of Asian clients that love the Australian truffle. And during the other season when the French can't get it, they will buy from us and use it in their marketing for London, uh, Italy, France, Spain. Uh, so, yeah, we, we sell a lot of truffle overseas, but the Asians absolutely love it. They love their truffle. Even Dubai. Dubai's right. got a massive market as well. It's just that that fine dining and everyone wanting to have that, that wonderful experience with their guests at the table and, and enjoying something that maybe, you know, it's just the celebration of life with food. Wow, just hearing about the international stuff, it makes me think like you must have had to fast track or just maybe you just had that knowledge already, but um, the whole like supply chain side of things and ensuring like maybe we can just touch on, is there a shelf life for a truffle? And like you said, you, you want to cultivate it or, or, or pick it, but it, how long does that before yeah, you need so to Yeah, so the whole, it? and again, the logistics of exporting and importing truffle is a challenge. Uh, it's a, a bit of a, 
a dice roll uh, until you can get it right. But uh, it certainly needs to be packaged and transported very carefully, very quickly and at the right temperatures. Uh, and that's it's such an expensive product to play with. So it's uh, it's always a challenge. So ne- yeah. it would never ever get close to freezing point, but it's like low, like cool, cool. Is that the... Yeah, yeah. So you really don't want it to be going over, let's say, um, four degrees is, is perfect, but you can't freeze it. Once you freeze a truffle, it doesn't behave. It just turns to mush. It disintegrates. So you cannot allow it to freeze. And I, I mean, that is the challenge. I think even I spoke to you earlier just yesterday, I received a shipment in from Europe that had unfortunately been frozen through freight. So that uh, broke my heart to go and collect that and to clear it with all the documentation and so forth and to receive nearly, I don't know, $12,000 worth of product that is frozen and unusable for my chefs at that point for what they want it for. And and no one's, uh, it's not like there's any fallback uh, claim or anything. Yeah, no insurance for perishables. It's a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, so there's just this whole investigation then that goes into at what stage did it get treated differently or where did it get frozen? Was it at the handling side here where the documentation gets processed or is it uh, during the actual freight, you know, from wherever it may be, whether it's Italy or France or or Spain or wherever the truffle is coming from at that time, where along that, that line. You can buy little discs now that you put into the, the shipment and that disc will record the temperature and let you know at what stage that happened. Uh-huh, so there yeah. is ways to, to combat it. But um, well, that was actually one of my questions is around like at some point, like this world is like becoming highly technological and there's tracking devices and stuff. So is that, yes. is that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. As, as good as it gets is you get a real time kind of monitor? Absolutely. And, and when you're doing large, large shipments, you could be doing 50 kilos out of Australia. There needs to be some clarity about that process and, and how it's managed and, and to do it well. Because you don't want to be providing such a, a high end product and something going wrong, but believe me, it does. It does. Uh, that's yeah, yeah, obviously painful, but you just go with it and yeah. breathe and yes, yeah. Um, just on the the yes, the personal side and how you keep the balance with all that. Like I saw you take a deep breath and just oh, because I was just thinking about re- the Italian white truffles at the beginning of the season and I lost it. two shipments. Oh, yeah, you did in a row. Yes. <laughs> So, so how do you manage all this? So, so do you get a little bit of help in the business somewhere? Somewhere you've you've brought in people to play certain roles. Like, is it fair to say you wear you wear all the hats for the business? So, yeah, um, I certainly um, have been the orderer, supplier, deliveries, all of that sort of side of things. Uh, I have turned to certain farms for uh, product, and I have a guy uh, in Sydney and Melbourne, some people that also import because sometimes you need volume. So with this game, whether it's certain products that we bring in from Europe or, or Asia or wherever we bring in an import, there certainly needs to be volume for it to be viable. So there's certain people that can go in with you for your importing. Okay. Uh, with the exporting, obviously the volume of the product that you're sending out, you would need to source from certain farms or certain people that have that that product at that size or volume. Yeah. And then and in, um, like you said, the supply and demand kind of, fluctuates a little bit and you get a situation like that where the shipment was coming through does that mean that there's just nothing on on the menu for that week yeah yeah absolutely and the, the crazy thing is the price unfortunately will go um very high at the beginning of the season when there's less product less truffle to be found so the price is high but the quality of the product isn't necessarily great because the season peaks in the middle so during the middle of that season, suddenly the truffle is full of flavor and aroma and it's at its best and there's an, a lot more around. 
And that is usually when uh, you'll find it a little bit cheaper. So it's like any seasonal product. You, you kind of, and we were talking about the mushrooms earlier and the different fluctuation in prices. Well, at the moment, if you were to find them, you might get, I don't know, $15, $20 a kilo. And then when they become less, they, they go up to $40 a kilo. So there's a, a big difference in the price. And the same with the truffle. At the beginning and end of the season, the price can almost double. There's less out there. Everyone wants it. It might be on a menu, so they're desperate to get it. And it's a shame because you, you're trying to manage uh, a menu item with a, a totally different price point of it being nearly you know, double. Yeah, it's wild. I'm just thinking of like for, us, for some of those academics out there, it makes a really interesting economy, like <laughs> economics case of, you know, just how this all. And it's communication and it trust. Like I'll go to my restaurants and I'll say, guys, the price has gone up. And because I've been working with them and I'm completely transparent and communicating that, it's really important because I could say to them, guys, it's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars more this week or a couple thousand dollars more on the kilo. And, you know, they a, might not be able to afford that for the menu, but they've got to trust me and that's how, how it works. At the moment, even the, the euro for importing and freight is double. It's only 800 euro just to bring a little box in. Is that because of all the pl- not as many planes? Is that how yeah, that's yeah. The freight, uh, the freight options have been limited and with all the transport uh, being limited for passengers not coming into the country anymore, we found that there's maybe one option to bring a whole shipment in from France or from Italy. So you're, you're limited now by the, the freight options and the prices have just gone through the roof. Wow. So all that, that in the background, that little bit of an adversity and all that, did it discourage you at all? You thought, geez, this oh. business is, is, is great, but it's stressing me out. Yeah, definitely. There's times when you just can't, can't keep, you think you can't keep going. But the good thing is walking into that restaurant and the chef knows how much effort and energy you've put in. You know, you can be on the phone at midnight speaking to hunters and suppliers over in Europe to try to get this product in. Um, definitely been a challenge over COVID, uh, which is, which is uh, I guess, also where you keep going because if it's not easy to do, not everyone's doing it. So that's where the business is, is, is interesting because if it was easy, everyone would do it. And it's not. That's that's a good point. And you never really know how quickly, like I think for a lot of businesses here, the recovery came back and people were thankful that it was in a little bit in the right direction. It's like, okay, we can we can get out again. We can talk, we can meet and we can dine. Um, but the business has kind of swung back pretty quickly. So that- Oh, the hospitality industry right now, they're, they're absolutely getting burnt out. Right. Because so, it's like the full pendulum in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. and. So those that have survived and those that have stayed open, they had to adjust the sales and completely transform the day-to-day activity that was happening in their their business. Obviously, the takeaway option was one way to keep those doors open um, and then working out how that financially would cost out for staffing and for whatever way that that food had to be produced or processed or, or cooked to be a takeaway option as opposed to presented on a plate. So the restaurants that have stayed open have been through that mental challenge as it is and then the exhausting hours of trying to figure out how to transition into a takeaway space. Then you've got the fact that the restaurants that have stayed open have never closed through all of this, right? So my business, as an example, I didn't stop. And when you then go into the fact that we've gone through a Christmas period and now we're in February and March, which is usually around about where we all have our Christmas parties, we take time off, we give everyone a break. There is no stopping. These restaurants out there, like I've been out every night this week visiting my restaurants and they are to the brim. 
The positive out of COVID is that they now have people that are booking to get in. There's no walk-ins. It's making more effort and energy to actually get yourself a table and being able to turn those tables over at, you know, six, eight and ten and people being more structured with their uh, dining experience and being more grateful. But the the restaurants, honestly, they're so busy right now. It's fantastic. Very busy. Amazing. And that will be in pretty stark contrast to probably still around the world, many different places you probably are aware, like uh, lots of restrictions and, and everyone's kind of going through their own, yeah. Uh, and limited reset. staff. We, we've got less uh, less staff in the pool for the hospitality world. A lot of people didn't go back. Right. A lot of people uh, would have relied on front of house staff from overseas, which we don't have. So there's a there is a bit of a burn, like honestly, a bit of a burned out feeling out there in the industry right now. And I, I speak to chefs that are doing hours that are extraordinary, that front of house that are just like, oh my god, it's not slowing down. Normally we have a break now, so it's a little bit of a spin out out there at the moment with what's going on. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I think the government just released today half price airfares going to all of these places. So we're about to see even a busier April. So, yeah, amazing. amazing how it all, you really have to think about all these factors, right? And uh, and yeah. then come back to how does it affect you, your business? And, and it's good. And the good thing is that everyone is trying to support small business. And um, I've certainly found that COVID for me was all about connectivity. So even though there was social distancing and people being told to keep away and keep home, the connectivity that happened for me with restaurants and businesses in the area was phenomenal. Uh, I, I reached out and I tried to make an enormous effort with people in my industry to make sure, A, they're okay, but also how do we now connect and move forward and try to make sure that we're all okay because, as they say, um, a rising tide lifts all boats. So our industry, we're, we're only as good as each other and trying to ensure that we all do okay. And uh, the the push for supporting local i my my business was everyone sort of reached out deb you're the small local business here how do we help make sure you're still here because uh if if they're not buying from me then they probably have to buy from sydney or melbourne or from from somewhere else so we're trying to keep everyone keep everyone going yeah absolutely i've heard that a few many times with different business owners and it's good to see that it's across industries and um and it's probably a mix of the goodwill and just wanting to help, appreciating your help to to support their business to date. But then um, probably there's a bit of business safety, like you said, if they're having to rely on an external product from overseas, um, they may not be able to get it. Yeah, and you know, yeah, so it's that's what's happening right now. So because we are getting busier, I'm saying to people, guys, there's there's a delay in shipments and there's a complication in freight at the moment. So. A, do we find an alternative local supply of that product or how do we make this work better because we now need to buy bigger volumes? And so there's a lot more communication and connectivity and appreciation in the whole industry. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, look, very, very cool insight Like you know, for people that are just looking at um, even, even the category of business that you're operating. It's sort of a, um, it's certainly a passion and appreciation for the product, but um it's risky it's a certain yeah it's a certain luxury market in the end right i yeah. mean it's so um look just just curious about yourself i mean what i was listening to is the all the challenges that you've had in this creating this business and operating the business uh where did it come from like how did you get the skills to to do that and was that a something you had to force yourself to a bit of self-teaching about okay i've just got to learn Importing, exporting. Yeah, or, I know. It's you know interesting, I mean? isn't it? So there was no, uh, okay, so when you know, I just did. Where, yeah, take us through like where you 
When I did decide to start this business, I went down and shadowed a guy in Melbourne and Sydney to see how they were doing it down there, um, which certainly um, was so valuable because there, there is no, you don't really need to reinvent the wheel as such. Um, so I found that was a good platform to kick off from. But, you know, I think it, for me, I've always had a fairly strong business sense. I've never been to university, so I um, certainly don't have the academic um, qualifications as such. Uh, but it's just pure. I mean, if if I had to go through what I went through to start my business again, I wouldn't have done it. So you you have no idea how everyone goes. Oh, it's so good and exciting to have your own business. I mean, seven days a week, twenty hours sometimes. You and you are churning things over in your mind. And I'm a bit of a risk taker, obviously, because you can see what I do as a job. So I'm one of those people that will have an action plan and I'll just go and get it done. And uh, and I'll deal with everything as that as the tide changes. So my day could have a bit of a, a to-do list and I get to 10 o'clock and so many things have happened and I've just got to adjust completely all day, every day, what I'm doing as as it happens and unfolds. It's, 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 uh, it's crazy. But that's my personality type. So I'm very fortunate that my personality can manage that uh, maybe ADHD, can't focus, kind of can jump to this, to that. Yeah. to survive so you basically um i guess if 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 you were to take if someone took you out of this role and, and planted you in a different role fair to say you, you would gravitate back this like you're in your spot like this is exactly i'm enjoying yeah i definitely enjoy what i do absolutely uh, and it's evolving and i'm constantly trying to figure out how to make uh, time management better and how to structure more of my business. And that comes with time. When I first started, I pretty much would be anywhere at any time to be able to get business to work. Now I value my time and I'm valuing, and people value also what I've provided as a service. So I'm, I'm able to dictate a little more how that looks moving forward. So guys, this needs to happen for that to happen. Otherwise, I can't give you the best service or provide you with the best product. So I'm learning that now and I'm finding at the fifth year that that's where that pivotal change happens anyway with a business because you're growing and you're growing so big that you need to start to adjust how that model looks. That's very interesting. You mentioned fifth year. Actually, our company's in the fifth year as well. And I hadn't really looked deeper in terms of, um, you know, how other businesses are pacing. You just kind of go with what what's needed. And like yeah. you said, there's a bit of evolution. You just and it's you feel like that in itself is a good thing if you feel like the business is evolving, um, but uh, yeah, like you said, is is there some point where you would b build it and try something else, or do you feel like yourself are you adding little modules over the yeah, over time? Yeah, so um, initially I started off just running around with Truffle and uh, trying to to get restaurants to be involved and buy it or supply and and uh, play with it, and now I, I've moved into especially during COVID, I had the opportunity to slow down. During COVID, and I um, branched into now growing truffle trees. So I've got a couple of orchards out there now that I was able to get up and running, and I also am producing product. So I've now got um, due to COVID, there was an oversupply of truffle in the industry last year in our country, and so I went and bought a lot and made some products with it, and I'm trialing some certain things which will be launched soon. So ah, there we go. So okay. opportunity, you know, it's all about trying to um, diversify so that you will survive no matter what, because there's going to be people that are going to do what I do and and slowly come along behind me or beside me, and so I need to be able to work out where I fit in and how I evolve and how I offer more. 
but also managing my time and my energy. So it's been good. It's been really good. That's neat. And again, this is all, you know, within Australia, the innovation, the, um, you, you know, the client, the, a lot of your, your clients are supportive in the local area too, right? And then it goes out inter, interstate and yeah, brilliant. Um, out into the West as well. So you've got some connection with Perth, I think. Yeah, no, with Manjimup, which is uh, um, near Margaret River. That's where the truffle country is in Australia, besides some in Tasmania. But, uh, yeah, my partner has a hotel out there, so we're very lucky to be able to immerse ourselves into the truffle country area and um, and run a pub out there as well. So I've been, yeah, I've been involved now in fortunately learning a lot more about the back end of hospitality. Yeah, there you go. Right? So you got, you got truffle, <laughs> truffles and high end. Yeah. Is, is it a high end pub? or uh, are we not talking a, Auss- No, real Auss- country. Aussie pub. Yeah, real country Aussie pub. So... Uh, yeah, so getting myself behind the bar and, and during COVID, I was actually um, caught over there for a couple of months too. So I was trying to run my business from there and help out at this pub. And I I would certainly never, um, I've worked in bars before, but to actually run the restaurant there as well uh, with the team uh, was a challenge and something that was wonderful to experience because now I walk into my restaurants with a whole different appreciation and a whole different perspective on everything that happens in the kitchen in the front of the house and the the front the floor of the restaurant. Wow, I can just just hear you put yourself in positions that, um, yeah, it's a challenge, but um, it, that's a positive kind of stress, right? Where you you're in there like you're just doing something new or in the moment. I actually thought about this this morning. So I'm driven I'm driven by that. So I don't mind putting myself out there at all. My mother's always instilled in me to never give up and to try this, try that, be adventurous, have a go. It was it's absolutely in my genetic makeup. Uh, and on top of that, fear. I love it. It drives me. So it is a motivator for me. And I find that if I don't know how to do something, I'll I'll go find out. It's not a, I don't believe it's that hard. So <laughs> Oh, I think that's going to make some of our highlight, our clip reel, our highlights, because I mean, you had answered some big questions in there, or at least touched on it. So the things like, uh, you know, how much of this, where these personality traits come from, is it genetic, and you know, like you would know your family, yeah. your upbringing, and uh, but then there's environmental, and and then all of that comes together. I guess it's hard to isolate one thing, but but I can't. Yeah, like I grew up with nothing, so I grew up in housing commission. Mum was a single mum, so I kind of grew up with that tough childhood, and uh, and I'm grateful for it. It's certainly instilled a, a drive in me. And uh, I guess my son's 12 now and I just never, ever wanted him to see me not have a go. It's so important in life just for him to try. And it doesn't matter if he doesn't work or it fails or whatever. I just he has to try. Just try. So he, so just hearing you describe that, and I can relate because I, I have a nine-year-old at the moment now and she's, well, she's just turned nine. But it's the same, same similar feeling, I feel like. So the kid is observing you having a go yes and you feel that that's impactful for the child, child oh, right? essential essential and i don't i don't want to be um sounding negative about the, the generation coming out but there there seems to be a little less motivation in them and i find or maybe that's just the one the children i'm seeing but i just really hope that there's some drive i hope that they want to achieve great things and i hope my son sees that no matter what i haven't given up there's never a chance it doesn't happen it's just not it's not even on the cards you just got to keep going. That's cool. Yeah, and people listening in, yeah, for sure they would, they would be inspired by. It's by resilience, that. right? It's, resilience is everything. It's getting back up every time, no matter what. So that's what I think. I, I certainly feel has been um, imperative in every bit of the decision making I make in my business and going forward. 
you get knocked knocked down and knocked back so many times. And sometimes even a small step, like just to, and, you know, if you don't fix everything in one day, uh, it's just a little chip away at uh, fixing whatever you got to fix or moving the past. And prioritizing, it. Uh-huh. yeah. So that's really key. I write a list at night every night. And uh, that list in the morning when I wake up after a sleep, I sometimes go, wow, that was so important last night. Now it's not that important. I know it, I know I can actually put that off or deal with that in a different way. And so that list gets written at night and in the morning I rewrite that list every morning because after sleep I find that I can actually adjust the way that I prioritize too. It's bizarre. Uh, here we go. Yeah. No, but these are these are little life hacks, you know, and it's it's gold to be able to have you share that what what works for you and then others can relate to some of the things that, yeah writing i'm a bit of a list writer but i also um learned about uh, writing a definitive aim so i tried to work out what was important to me and i'd write down uh what that was and i'd write that sentence five times every morning what it is i wanted to do what i wanted to achieve and how i was going to achieve that so it was like a sentence i made and i can remember when i first started my business i worked out what i needed to cover let's say rent and food and Jai goes to a, a nice school. So there was 60 bucks that I needed to find every day for that. So there was a, a, a list of what the, I call it reverse engineering. I put down what I need to achieve and how I'm going to achieve that. And it was just little baby steps, but it felt so good because once you wake up in the morning and you write that sentence five times, you're focused, you're ready to go. You know what it is that you need to achieve. So there was this definitive aim, I called it, and I used to write it down every morning and it was what? would focus and propel me to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, pen and paper, writing it down on your phone, just, but just something that is uh, you've committed to and, yeah. is, and you can come back to it, right? Yeah, it's great. To yeah. have a look at it now four or five years ago and look what I was trying to achieve and I'm like, wow, that was it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. I, I'm a bit, just to relate, I, I'm a bit the same. I still have books and I, I actually treasure those books. Like a, It's a little order of events and if you... If you can look back, it's like a it's like a little diary in a way, a, like yeah. a to do list. But it's like, and you can see how much you've evolved. Like there's a lot of work that goes into achieving things, but also just as a human, so that master of self. How do you now perceive things? Like I had to learn how to um, understand ego. That was big, and understand how not to judge people. So always come from a place of no judgment. And these were things that I I had to work on. So very different person to 10 years ago or even five years ago, I see that 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 person evolving and uh, and getting a lot more thicker skin. So you actually stop. I mean, I care so much about what I do in people, but I also now stop uh, caring so much if it's if it's not going to serve me well. well. That's interesting. So like you're really talking, we're not talking about the business at all, at all anymore. It's like yourself as the, I mean, you are, do you do you identify with are you the business or is the business here? Yeah, in, yeah, that's in, a bit tricky. So yeah. the lady truffle logo and and everything, uh, had I have done this differently, maybe I wouldn't have penciled it in so tight to be about me because it was personal branding, right? So my I've got a social media page which is Debbie Oliver, and then I've got a social media page that is my business, and one's obviously meant to be a lot more professional than the other. And quite often I've got to pull it back in to figure out what what is okay to put out there about me and what is okay to put out for the business. And it just comes, it, it keeps coming back into each other. And it's it's very, um, you sometimes got to sit back and think, how do I make sure that they're separate, but also be incredibly authentic? So I, I if people don't like me on social media, then maybe they're not going to do business with me, but that's okay. Because you're finding your tribe anyway. And the people that do like you will find that they, they like the authentic you are the ones you want to do business with. 
Yeah. Well, like that. I mean, finding the tribe, like you mentioned, that's kind of a, a movement out there, I think, with marketing people in circles and yeah, well, this, the social media does it for yeah, you anyway. It's, yeah, people like you, or they unfollow you, they follow you, and and you find that the people that stick with you are the people that actually don't mind who you are and what you're about. Yeah, and you mentioned the separating or the or the integration of like person and business. I mean, it could go either way. It's um, whatever's right for the for the person, I guess. I, I do think that you can. See it's a big benefit if you are tied to the business personally because you can almost lean on that a bit and. You're invested in it, right? Yeah, and people know maybe that's organically. You're just you're tied to it, and people appreciate you. And and I think when you have a small business and it's and you are a business owner, that the whole passion about what you're doing must show. It must. People want to know that you care about what you're doing because it means you care about. I remember saying to someone once, "I don't want to sell anything of my product to somebody um, unless they can move it or sell it or." be able to be, feel the magic of it because my business doesn't work if theirs doesn't. So it's almost like a team effort and it's like their business is in my business, my business is in their business. So even when it comes to, um, say, a truffle talk, I'll go to a chef or a restaurant, I'll come and do a truffle talk to help you out because I want your business to work. Yeah, It has to work, it has to tie in. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I just love that whole that whole framework, it's almost like, I mean, they might, in the old corporate days, they might call it selling through. And it's like that whole, you know, everything goes all the way through and everyone's looking after um, so that everyone's, yeah, I guess, getting the value and appreciating. But yeah, like in a softer way, uh, it's just about the magic. I mean, like you described it. Yeah. So. And, in, and industry colleagues too, like I held a, I put a, a boat cruise on at the end of COVID and invited what you would tend to call your competitors in the market. So I just said, guys, let's get together. And this is absolutely just because I know that everyone's been through so much right now. And it was wonderful, the energy and the vibe and the, and it was nothing, there was nothing about being competitors. It was about being in, a, in it all together. And that's why I mentioned with that connectivity in the industry. It's so important. That's neat. That's yeah. neat. Jeez, you sh certainly shared a lot today with the different aspects of the, 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 the personal, how you approach things. Um, I think a lot of people can, can benefit just from the fresh thinking again. I think it's an it's an you got people overseas learning about Australians how they how they've tackled some big problems. Um, you've travelled overseas a bit. Yeah, a lot. I lived overseas for ten years, so I um I feel that I'm I've got a lot of connections over there, and I I enjoy cultures and people and everything they have to offer. But I do travel over there as well with my business, so I have to go and keep my connections tight. And um, even expos big giant food expos where they teach us about the movement and the direction of the food industry. The last one I went to was Anuga in Germany and I learned all about crickets and how they were going to become the next big food and yeah. Insect? Yeah, yeah. The crickets and, and also things like um where where's the industry going in the trends? So obviously everyone wants to be eating something that's good for them. So ideally if it's got some benefit, um, whether it's mental um, that that mental connection with our, our food and our gut health, but there was a whole big shift in that direction, and then there's sustainability. So everyone was very, very um, connected with how certain foods, or farming, or soil, or product, or even packaging, it all had to be sustainable and connected with the the goodness or the the production or the the benefit of the earth. So that was really, really big at the time. And there was one last one that I um that I remember seeing uh, that was interesting for the trends of the food. It was um, oh, I've lost it now, but it will come back to me that that um, 
Oh, purpose. Purpose, yes. Yes, purpose. It was how do you make sure that your business is somehow giving back? So even with my business, we, uh, my son and I came up with donating a can of dog or cat food for every truffle sale we did last year. So that truffle truck that you see there, the whole back of the ute was, was filled with cans of dog and cat food and we gave it to an animal shelter. So you've got to try to work out how that purpose fits in with business. So that was great to go and see those kind of expos and learn the trends for the industry that you work in. I think it's similar right through. Not just hospitality and food, but right through. Yeah, neat. Um, and that, that 10 years, I'm just trying to think about that experience and then maybe coming back afterwards. But was it 10 years in one spot or just a bit of nomadic? All over, yeah. yeah. So I lived in Japan and Hong Kong. I lived in London. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in, in the States and in France as well. So I was very lucky. Um, amazing spots. I also spent some time in Senegal, which was different. Okay. Um, my favorite place on earth, Cyprus. Loved yeah. it. Cyprus, geez, that place has, yeah. yeah, these places go through evolutions, right? Every, every place has had yeah, glory different. moments and tough times and uh, it's hard to yeah. keep track of who's where these days. But the, um, just so I can capture the, that lifestyle, was it just a bit of like a step away from employment or did you have some secondary income that could okay, allow so you to both? Okay, so at the time I was, um, my partner was an investment banker, so I was very fortunate to be financially stable yeah. okay. and we travelled a lot. He was an expat, so he would be in certain places for months on end. So I was very lucky and a very, I guess, a luxury high high-end lifestyle. It was great, okay. a lot of fun. But also for me, I'm, I'm so... Uh, I think it's good for women to work, I, and I'd say that with love. I just find that we've got quite an active mind. So for me, being able to work or to get myself involved or sink my teeth into something was really important. So I did a lot of uh, charity work uh, while I was over there. But no, I found I found the lady of leisure wasn't for me. That's for sure. I <laughs> oh, yeah. I need to work. Yeah, yeah. no. I, I mean, interesting. I was just interesting to see how because I'm all for travel, and I think that can benefit. But it's often People can't do it for financial reasons and yeah. you know, just moving around. But um, And then I'm just trying to draw the link between this travel or international experience and then coming back to do something like starting a business because you started it well after the travel, right? Yeah, so after I, um, well, I, I left my partner at the time and came back to Australia and I worked in Sydney in the travel industry and that was obviously because I'd travelled so much, it was so easy to be able to offer that that expertise and that that experience to people. So the travel industry um, was where I was for maybe four years. Then I uh, fell pregnant with my son, so I had to come back to the coast to be around family. And I moved here and I got into the corporate um, game where I worked for the medical industry or dental industry um, and marketing, PR and branding. So that, yeah, that took up the next few years while I was uh, suffocating in a work environment in a corporate office. Uh, I got to to shift that a little bit to going out onto the road and branding practices around the country, uh, rebranding and acquiring practices that we did from um, medical, well, it was actually dentists at the time. And that is when I started to feel that I needed to get back into something that I was passionate about. Yeah, neat. Well, I mean, there'll be lots of different life stages for people. Um, and uh, I think it is difficult to probably be an entrepreneur your whole life. <laughs> you know what I mean? And maybe that's, uh, I'm just looking for a interesting mix of experience to say, like, I think it is a life experience to be able to start something and create something, whether it succeeds or fails, but just to go through that 
experience. And, I, and you know, one of the biggest conversations I have, especially when I go to a lot of lunches with ladies and networking events, is that that jump to doing something you haven't done before. And I have no problem with doing that. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. Whereas some people I know are very stuck in doing something for 10, 20 years and they're too too scared to take that jump. Whereas I'm driven by that fear. I'm, I can't wait to learn something new and it's no problem for me to try something new. And that that's where I um, I thrive. So that was fun. That's I don't I know I don't even know what's next if I was to take another job. But God knows what it would be. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's good and fresh thinking because I think uh, there's probably a train of thought out there that if you're going to start something, do it while you're young. You know, there's no real financial risk. You don't have a mortgage probably, and this and that. Um, but you don't know a lot at that time either. So like, and then so there's sort of I like to be the champion for you know what if you've done the the early career uh, just a bit of that starting experience and then maybe there's a corporate job where you work for somebody and you it's don't a stepping stone, you don't right? really love it you realize that that's vital for what i had to do now but it's almost like a it's like almost like a no-go zone or once you get into that corporate world it's like a lot of people will talk you out of it and for financial reasons and like it's risk it's risk management so risk tolerance basically but yeah, yeah it's almost harder to start something at that point because a million different factors try to talk you out of it but you're almost in a, in a prime position to start like I have the feeling like it really worked out for you yeah and the corporate job um it's a, like, a, like I said it's a stepping stone almost I now knew there was an accounting department there was a marketing department there was a PR department department there was uh like all these different sectors of the business that were necessary to make it work like a big engine room and then when you start your own business, you start to recognize whether there's certain strengths or weaknesses you may have in those certain departments. Definitely different personality types. Marketing didn't get along with accounting and, you know, HR. You know, everyone was very, very different. So when you start your own business, you, you, you really need to put all those hats on. And so the corporate world certainly sets you up for that and allows you to understand personality types and, and strengths and weaknesses that you may or may not have. Um, and I found that vital, really good. I look back at it now and I'm grateful, oh, yeah. grateful that that was part of my career path or my journey yeah. um, to be able to go out, out on my own. That's but, yeah, and I just learn. I, I have uh, this capacity to learn as I go. I don't mind that. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that could pay off for sure. As well. um, and like I hear, I heard you just uh, smile after looking back. And I, uh, we like to highlight little moments of celebration and things like that. So, do you feel like um, are you at a point now where you do celebrate the success, like five year milestone? I, I don't. You know. I, uh, there's a saying, isn't it? Don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> sure. I'm certainly getting to that point. So I don't. I'm not going to sit. I I believe in myself more. Yeah, I understand what I'm capable of. So I'm more. Uh, more forgiving of myself, I'm more understanding of myself, and I stress less because I say to myself, you dealt with this, you handled that, you will be okay to deal with this. So you learn. You learn to just believe in yourself and have a go. And nothing, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> you pass away and then what are you going to do? Famous last words. But yeah. <laughs> so you just have a go. As but long as your intention's there, good intentions, uh, and you're, you're, um, you're just having a go with good intentions. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. What's the worst could happen? But then don't even don't even hesitate. Like just let it happen and uh, mm. and then take what comes at you and enjoy it. 
Yes. If I, if fair yeah, to say, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Enjoy the process. Um, that was super fun. Um, I, I had a, something written on my page here. I just want to mention it. The truffle kerfuffle. Can you just uh-huh. bring so, us back to that? Yeah, it's a, so that's it's an Australian a, thing. In Australia, we have a, a festival in Manjimup, and it's called the Truffle Kerfuffle. I love the name. And it's, uh, it's in its 10th year. Well, actually, last year was its 10th year, but it was uh, cancelled due to COVID. So this year, um, I'll be... Uh, flying over some of my big chefs and my accounts and and people in the food industry that um, have supported and helped me throughout this whole journey um, over to Manjimup to enjoy that festival. So it's a couple of days of truffle events and truffle food and truffle knowledge and it's a it's a really cool little um, event of fun to do with truffle. Yes, one. All truffle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the thing is, the, the thing that a lot of people don't realise is that Manjimup, where this truffle kerfuffle is held, is a, has a massive food bowl. It's incredible. There's cherries and all of uh, the stone fruits and avocados and, and wine, and it's a wonderful food bowl that's just up and coming and, and getting bigger and better. So that truffle country experience and that truffle kerfuffle I'll be able to enjoy with some of my fine foods and chefs and get them over there. 25th of June, that's on. Yeah. Brilliant. 25th of June weekend. But truffle season runs uh, June, July, and August. Okay. So there's tr- plenty of truffle everywhere there uh, throughout that season, that winter. Awesome. Um, look, that's been great. We'll definitely get some links uh, up along with the episodes and everything so people can explore on their own time. Yeah, wonderful. Um, is there a place that we can follow? What you're up to? Just tell us your website again. Yeah, so I've got um, ladytruffle.com.au is my website. I've also got my social media accounts, so Debbie Oliver and Lady Truffle Fine Foods. Excellent. Really appreciate you coming on, Debbie. That's been great on on many fronts, personal uh, industry and um, just a bit of life hacking. And uh, yeah, really appreciate coming on. Thank so. you. What a pleasure. All right, yeah. we'll have you back anytime. <laughs> I am a busy person, but yeah, we'll, and we'll certainly get some samples uh, to showcase for people because I think it's a good to see it in its thank final you. form. All right, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Aussie Ambitions podcast. We appreciate your support and welcome your input. So if there is a topic that you would like to see covered, Please let us know via our website, aussieambitions.com, or any of our social media accounts. And please subscribe to receive all of our updates. We hope that you've picked up some helpful tips helping you to get to where you want to go. And if you've got a story to tell and are able to come for a visit, definitely get in touch.